our arts, culture and literature feature. Today we speak to former Zimbabwe Deputy Prime Minister in the in an exclusive interview about uh, his engaging autobiography, Professor Arthur Mutambara has written a book titled In Search of the Elusive Zimbabwean Dream, an Autobiography of Thought Leadership, Volume 1. The book uh, reflects on a description of Professor Mutambara's uh, academic record from his high school days to his achievements, but of also, also he reflects on uh, experiences uh, in Zimbabwe and where he's worked in other parts of the world as well. Professor Mutambara, very good uh, afternoon to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us in the studio. Thank you very much for this opportunity to share with your listeners. So, um, one of the reasons, obviously, despite your um, academic and political experiences, I thought it would be interesting to speak to you. We're on the cusp of, as you know, the Governing Party's National Policy Conference, and there's been so many uh, comparisons made between South Africa and Zimbabwe, whether um, rightly or wrongly, Professor Mutambara, I thought one of the things perhaps we could talk about is that. But let me start by reflecting with you first. What would be the Zimbabwean dream? And do you do you do you talk about it? Do you define it in your book? And is there consensus of what is the Zimbabwean dream? Uh, essentially, we're talking about peace, uh, security, inclusive democracy, and shared and inclusive prosperity. If we could get that, an inclusive democratic setup. Uh, an inclusive and shared prosperity, that will be a sufficient definition of a Zimbabwean dream. Is it shared? Ostensibly, yes. People could differ on how to achieve the shared economic prosperity. They could differ on who should be the president or who should be in parliament. But all Zimbabweans want peace. They want stability. They want democracy, and they want to feed their families. Mm -hmm. So economic prosperity is a shared circumstance for the people of Zimbabwe. Do you believe it's those differences on who should lead and how they should lead? And I'm speaking also from a policy perspective here that has brought Zimbabwe to the point where it is. You know, you, you can't have a country where one man has been running for 37 years. No matter how good they are, it's an aberration. For, for people to understand how this is uh, a problem, can you imagine if Carter was still president in the United States? It means there was no, there would be no Reagan, no George Bush Sr., no Clinton, no Bush Jr., no Obama. All these different people I've mentioned brought in new energy, new teams, and new insights into the way America but have they run. necessarily translated into a it better doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is this new energy. I said energy, mm-hmm. vision. You know, what we've had in Zimbabwe is ostensibly what I call generational robbery. When you have one group, one person being in charge for four decades, it means you've robbed four or five Zimbabweans, if not ten, of the opportunity of becoming president. You've robbed generations in terms of their participation in the economy. So one comparison, I know you have problems in this country. One thing you can count yourselves to be lucky is that you've lost, you've, you've had two presidents who have come and gone. Mandela came and went. Mbeki came and went. Whether they went away the wrong way or right way, but they left. And this Zuma people are complaining, is going away. You know that. 
Are you looking into his last book, Professor? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm he, at least he's going away. I mean, okay. but in our environment, 1980 to 2017, one man. Anyway, oh. however. What's important is the quality of life of our people, the economic circumstances of our people. That is the issue. And right now, we have problems in the country. And I want to talk about those problems, uh, foremost among which is the issue of land. We are at a point in our transition, in our democratic project, where we are looking very importantly and decisively in terms of policy and how to tackle this and in a meaningful way, the issue of land. And there are those who have said, and, and, and I'm not necessarily saying you're an objective player in this, but I want to hear your musings on why the land issue did not work for Zimbabwe and whether or not there's a possible danger of us repeating the same mistakes. Let me start by saying the land question will never be an easy question, uh, whichever way you look at it. And um, if you don't address it, again, that is a problem. But when you try to address it, it's going to be a very tough and difficult exercise. In Zimbabwe, the objective was very clear. The motivation was very good. But however, the way it was done and the political usage of the land question in other words from Mugabe and Zanu PF it's not so much empowering Africans and empowering black people it's about how do we use the land reform program as a political tool how do we make sure we as a tool of patronage we give you land but if you misbehave we take it away from you we give land to our friends to our wives and children Hmm? not to the majority of the people of Zimbabwe yes land was taken away from white people that did happen. Where did it go? Did it go to the generality of the people of Zimbabwe? No. So it wasn't an issue of restitution, it was an issue of redistribution. Well, that's semantics. I know it's semantics, yeah, semantics and, 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 very I, 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 I have very little time for that. What I can tell you is the 4% of the population of Zimbabwe owning 80% of the land, that's not equitable. And there is a good case to distribute or to uh, restitute, whatever. But what I'm saying is Rather than take the land and give it to the poor woman, poor man, and empower the majority of the people, a few people in ZANU-PF, a few people in government, a few people in the army have multiple farms, five farms, ten farms, and yet the poor worker, poor woman, poor peasant has no land. So a good program, a good idea was distorted in execution. But most significantly, um, there has been no effort to provide security of tenure on the land. There's been no effort to make sure when you have your land, you are secure on the land. You are always looking behind you because if you misbehave, the land is taken away from you. In other words, land is not about empowerment. It's about how do we use land to ensure that we remain in power. Okay, let's go back to your book, Student Politics, and uh, uh, your involvement in various levels and institutions of government and governance. You once described President Mugabe as an upright and incorruptible revolutionary. Take us through that trajectory from you know where you first got involved to a point where and i know it's it's asking a lot in a very short space of time but to a point where you thought okay perhaps a solution i could be deputy president and we can get this right 
back on the right track. The major import of the book is to demonstrate the evolution of my thoughts, the evolution of my understanding, the growth of my thinking. So as a young person in high school, I was overly impressed by the liberation struggle, by freedom fighters, by nationalists like Mugabe, Tekere, and Gomo. I was a young, impressionable uh, person in Zimbabwe. And so you find at the beginning of the book, I'm writing an essay in the day, uh, a day in the life of a freedom fighter, you know, romanticizing combat, romanticizing freedom fighters and so on. And then you find in there, there's an essay where um, I'm defending the one-party state, a ZANU-PF one-party state, as the solution to our problems. You know, in the 80s, socialism, the Vanguard Party, and ZANU-PF were in vogue in the country. And Mugabe being the hero of the liberation struggle. So we're very naive. So we took it for granted that, you know, this man, this party, ZANU-PF, and Mugabe, the leader, were the solution to our country's problems. But fast forward, we're now at university. I'm now a student at UZ. And we see oh, these guys are corrupt. These guys are undemocratic. These guys are killing people in Matebeleland during Gukrahundi. So you find that we then start to become circumspect and say, what's going on? Maybe we don't need a one-party state. Maybe we need multiple parties that compete so that we can have checks and balances. Maybe the one-party state is not the answer. Again, you can see me growing and coming to terms with the failings and the corruption of the freedom fighter. The freedom fighter had become the dictator. The freedom fighter had become a corrupt leader in our country. And then I started opposing the regime of Robert Mugabe. And of course, as it is in the book, I was arrested, locked up and injured and so on. Uh, and we took a dramatic position in October 1988 to say, no, ZANU-PF is not the answer in our country. Mugabe is the chief looter. Mugabe is not the answer to our country. That is mm. October 1988. And then, of course, you know, it goes on. And then I go to Oxford. I go to America. I'm just saying to Africans, let us document our thoughts. And I want you to help us, uh, even before we document it, mm -hmm. uh, think with us. Because when you uh, became Deputy Prime Minister, there must have been something in your consciousness, there must have been something in you as a politician that said, there is a s solution here that we can work together with Zanu PF, that it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, the end of a dream as it were. So, what was it that made you think you can work with Zanu PF and what changed your mind? Mm. You know, I start with Gandhi and Kennedy. Uh, be the change you seek to see in the world. Ask not what others can do to bring about change, but rather what you can do in your own small way to bring about change. So I felt that rather than being a crybaby, rather than just be some complainer, I must become an activist. I must become part of the solution. So from way back when, I became a student leader. I was active. I was active in the U.S., in England. And I came back and became part of the opposition. So I did not decide to work with ZANU-PF. There was a hung parliament, as you know, after the elections of 2008. And so you have ZANU-PF, MDCT, and the MDC that I led. We went into negotiations under President Mbeki. We formed a coalition government. That's how I came to work with President Mugabe as part of the inclusive government, a three-way inclusive government. And again, we were trying to make a difference. 
build a new constitution, uh, fix the economy, create conditions for freeness and fairness of our elections. I've always felt that we must become part of the solution. Enough analysis, enough complaining, let us always take a plunge and be part of the crafting of solutions. I'm That's how I got to become deputy prime I'm minister. I'm going to ask my final question is that South Africa is looking at a solution right now that has been touted, radical economic transformation. And I want you to give advice to our leaders, uh, to South Africans as citizens uh, about and this is from lessons learned not only from Zimbabwe sure. but other African democracies. Let's start with uh, the clean slate. Um, the current status quo is unsustainable. What we got in 1994 was political independence. They gave the Africans the crown and they kept the jewels. They gave the Africans in 1994 political independence, but there was no economic independence, there was no economic empowerment. So radical economic transformation is non-negotiable. There's no discussion about whether it's desirable or not. It is the only way forward. What's important, however, is to make sure a good idea is not corrupted by a few individuals who seek to empower themselves and their families at the expense of the majority. A good idea is not distorted by a ruling clique to benefit itself at the expense of the majority. So my view, lessons learned from Zimbabwe, is a good idea has to remain good by executing it correctly. And more importantly, radical economic transformation should be a shared agenda across the political parties, not belonging to the ANC. In fact, I, I find it very puzzling that the ANC thinks that they're going to be in power forever. South Africa must survive even if the ANC is gunned out of power, is, get, is, is, is defeated in the elections, which means we must have a national vision which is above party. The National Democratic Plan, NDP, must be a program for the EFF, a program for the DA, a program for IFP, a program for South Africans, so that if the EFF comes into power, we continue in the same trajectory. If the DA comes into power, we continue on the journey to the same destination. The destination economy, the national vision for South Africa must be above party. I think that's a good and apt note to end it on. Thank you very much.